0: SAFM leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. Advocate Nora Tobi, good evening and thank you so much for joining us this evening. Really, really do appreciate your time and your work all together.
1: Thank you, um, Oliver, and I'm very appreciative of the opportunity.
0: I'm I'm not going to stand in your way any further. You've got 30 minutes and, and I'd, I'd really like to hand it over to you.
1: Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here and to have been invited this evening um, to speak to you on a uh, topic uh, I've both worked in as a practitioner and also written uh, uh, both academically and uh, uh, commercially on. I want to focus the discussion on restitution. The starting point is to try and answer the question why so few have so much and why so many have so little. The starting point is Europe. Uh, In the 18th century, in other words, in the 1700s, where among the European powers, there was a struggle for dominance between the British, the Portuguese, the French, the Spanish, and of course the Dutch. The consequences of that struggle for dominance were experienced outside of European soil. They were experienced in today's Southern America, North America, Asia, and Africa. The Cape as it was founded then as a colony also experienced this European rupture as it became the site of European contestation for control. The British, the Spanish, and the Portuguese had all visited the Cape. But they had not established a permanent settlement until the years between 1648 and 1652 when the Dutch under the command of Jan van Riebeek, who had been instructed by the Dutch East India Company. At the time, a very influential and a powerful company which had become extremely wealthy as a result of the spice trade. Van Riebeek's arrival at the Cape changed the future Of South Africa as a whole subsequent to his arrival and together with the arrival of the Dutch conquest effectively began and the struggle was the struggle for land what would these new people eat where would they live what would they trade with. The initial encounters between the Dutch and the Khoi Khoi, various tribes of today's Western Cape, were relatively peaceful exchanges of cattle, exchanges of sheep, and exchanges of land. But as the colony grew, so did the contestation for economic survival, resulting in a turbulent era of war. That era of war is ultimately resolved in favor of the Dutch, who not only defeat the Khoikhoi but genocide them. In today's South Africa, the story of the genocide of the Koi in the hands of the Portuguese is forgotten. As most historical accounts tend to use the smallpox epidemic of 1713 as justification for the disappearance of an entire race. But it is, of course, useful to recall that it was war rather than disease that was at the heart of the disappearance of the koi in the Western Cape. There were more skirmishes in the Western Cape. But the turning point was when the British joined the race or the occupation of the cape in particular the most important year is 1820 when the british decided to send more thousand more than 4000 settlers to the cape this time they did not settle in the western cape but settled in the eastern cape there were various conflicts between the British and the Dutch, resulting in the Dutch descendants that were in the Cape leaving the Cape in between 1834 and 1835 under what was known as the Great Trek. Both of these events, the arrival of Van Riebeek and indeed the arrival of the 1820 settlers had profound consequences for native people. And those consequences are today resulting in the shortage of land for occupation by native people. When the descendants of the Dutch left the Cape to settle in Natal, in Transvaal and in the Free State, they had no land. They encountered the Sutus, the Tswanas, the Zulus, and they vanquished them in war. So by 1879, when the last war of conquest was fought over Zululand, the picture had completely changed. A land that was initially occupied by native people, now belonged politically, militarily, economically, and legally in the hands of the various European races. So that when the Native Land Act of 1913 was passed, it was passed over a people who once had title, but had lost both title and territory. Often we argue that the beginning point of dispossession of Africans was the 1913 Native Land Act, which is a grave historical error because it is indeed the wars in the 150 years preceding the 1913 Native Land Act, which explain the power that could be deployed by the settler races of 1913. Nevertheless, 1913 is a significant moment because, for the first time, this polity known as the Union of South Africa has been established in 1910, comprising the Cape and Natal, the former British possessions, Transvaal, and the Free State the former independent Boer republics. Its unique element is racial distinction. And the racial distinction is manifest in two fundamental areas. One is citizenship, who is a citizen of the new union of South Africa. Do the native people have rights of citizenship? The second is land ownership. What is the extent to which native people can claim title over the territory? Both of those questions are decided against African people. They are neither citizens nor are they entitled to ownership of the territory known as South Africa. That then lays the foundations for dispossessions that took place under apartheid, the most significant of which was under the Group Areas Act, followed from the 1976 period up to 1983 period by the creation of the Bantustans, in which the unresolved question of citizenship coming all the way from 1910, is finally resolved by creating Bantustans for Africans and enabling them to exercise the rights of citizenship, but outside of white areas, which were part and parcel of South Africa. And so is the land question itself finally resolved with the creation of the Bantustans. In order to decide which land was native, which land was European, the last significant statute is then the 1975 Expropriation Act, which was passed exclusively to enable the apartheid government to mark out territories for native occupation and European or white occupation. So from that moment onwards, there was a definite connection between the new concept of race and land. And the concept of nativity usually meant inability to own land. This was the struggle then of the African National Congress the preeminent movement that fought for the liberation of South Africa alongside other political parties like the Pan-Africanist Congress, the Azanian um, uh, People's Organization, but the preeminent organization was the African National Congress. From its side, the African National Congress initially began on a campaign of the restoration of land to African people. Much of this is apparent from its writings. In 1923, when it passed the very first Bill of Rights, most of us have forgotten about the contents of that Bill of Rights, which in a sense borrow rather paradoxically from Cecil John Rhodes himself from his famous doctrine, equality for all people south, for all civilized people south of the Zambezi. And that doctrine being advocated for by the African National Congress of one of its most enlightened leaders, Pixley Kaizaka Sen. By the 1940s, the ANC's approach had solidified on the issue of land. It was clear that it advocated expressly for the repeal of the Native Land Act and for the ability of all people, regardless of race, to acquire land in order to create a just society. The ANC's approach also led to the passing of another influential document in 1943 called the Africans' Claims, which, in my respectful view, was the true foundation for the Bill of Rights we today enjoy. That document would later be followed by the Freedom Charter and in its opening line, South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black or white, and no government shall claim any legitimacy unless it is based on the will of the people. The ANC's struggle resulted in a victory of sorts, imperfect, but victory nevertheless, in 1994. By then, The ANC's approach to the land question was not influenced by nationalization or grand state ownership. Most commentators who have argued that the ANC abandoned nationalization in favor of something else have not truly grasped the policy evolution inside the ANC from the 1960s to the 1980s. By the 1980s, the ANC's approach to the economy was to regard both private industry and state ownership as two sides of the same coin. On issue of land, by 1994, when the ANC was engaged with the National Party in negotiations, there were two significant developments that largely influenced the ANC's approach to the issue of land. The first one was the experience of Lancaster in 1979 to 1980, when Zanu and ZAPU engaged the British government at Lancaster House in London and produced an agreement which would govern the liberated Zimbabwe. That agreement contained a land clause. And let me cite the specific clauses. One, the Lancaster Constitution recognized private property and protected it from seizure by the state. Two, the state was given limited powers to forcibly take property in specific instances like national defense, public safety, public order, public morality, and in the event of underutilization, resettlement for agricultural purposes. Three, where the land was taken forcibly, it was required under the Lancaster Constitution that prompt payment of adequate compensation would be guaranteed or decided by a court. Number four, everyone was granted the right of access to court to arbitrate compensation disputes. That meant that from the outset, the rights of the former settlers of Zimbabwe to hold on to property that was acquired under colonialism was recognized. Within a few years of this property clause, and although the state had the power to redistribute the land, very little land was in fact redistributed under the Zimbabwean African National Union Patriotic Front, the ZANOPF. Things began to change when the PF lost the constitutional referendum of 2000, because there was now a new political agitation from below. And that is what drove the mode of ZANU-PF to usurp the debate of land reform from progressive voices like the Movement for Democratic Change. It is now a notorious fact that Zimbabwe's land reform has collapsed under the weight of market fundamentalism, disrespect of the rule of law, corruption and bureaucratic inefficiency. That model, the Zimbabwean model, was followed later by the Namibian model. In Article 16 of the Namibian constitution, which was adopted in 1989, the same feature that we found in the Zimbabwean Lancaster Constitution, that property acquired under apartheid by white Namibians was also protected. But the Namibian government was given limited powers of compulsorily taking the land for wider redistribution, And this power was known as expropriation. In 2018, when I visited Namibia, and had the pleasure of speaking to its president, Mr. Hage Geingob. It was already clear that the Namibian Land Reform Program had itself failed much in the same way as the Zimbabwean Land Reform Program. I interviewed the president of Namibia and asked him what constraints existed during the negotiations between Swapo and the National Party, he mentioned the emerging global economic order dominated by the West, Namibia's strategic importance for South Africa's own independence, and the fact that the Zimbabwe's, Zimbabwean failures of land reform were not yet evident. And so I mentioned these two examples to explain the paradox that faced South Africa. When it enters the family of free African states in 1994, five years after Namibia, again in South Africa, property like in Zimbabwe and in Namibia was a major sticking point. But the formula that ultimately finds its way to Section 25 of the Constitution was borrowed from Zimbabwe, perfected in Namibia, and then applied to South Africa. Its unique feature is still that property acquired under colonialism and apartheid would not be uprooted at once. Instead, the state is granted the power to expropriate for resettlement or land reform subject to payment of compensation. Unlike in Zimbabwe, where compensation was guaranteed at market value, or in Namibia, where compensation was simply classified as just, in South Africa, not only should compensation be just, it must also be equitable. And it is the trick lies in that equitability of the compensation. But the point is that, More than 28 years after liberation in South Africa, the experience of Zimbabwe, the experience of Namibia now stares us in the face. The dream of land reform is yet to be realized. I want to spend then the last 10 minutes of my talk exploring why Specifically in the context of land restitution, there has been a failure. In other words, to answer the question why do we have an enabling legislative and environment, but it is producing outcomes that are contrary to the expectations? Why do we have a pro poor policy producing anti poor? outcomes. Often, the law has been criticized or blamed. But of course, the problem is never just one thing, and it is never just the law. What are the problems that we face? The first problem that we have faced in land restitution is the nature of restitution itself. Land restitution focuses on the return of the land to a specific category of individuals, those people that can prove that they were dispossessed of land or rights in land from the 19th of June, 1913, when the Native Land Act came into operation. So there is an inherent limitation right at the outset That limitation, which is a characteristic feature of any determination of a date, invariably excludes a range of other potential claims that fall outside of the predetermined date. That date was chosen plainly because it is the date when the Native Land Act came into operation. Was it a mistake to have chosen that date I think there is a strong argument that the date was an error, but it was perhaps an error that could be explained because of the political constraints of the time. The second problem has been the institutionalization of land reform. Land reform is located in one institution, which is the Commission for the Restitution of Land Rights Act. You and I are unable to pursue individual claims. We all have to go via the institution. What that means is that if there is a breakdown in the efficacy of the institution, we are disempowered from pursuing individual claims. The third problem that we have faced has been the structure, what I have referred to in my book, Land Matters, the structure of land reform. What do I mean by that? The structure of land reform is primarily driven by landowners. Why do I say this? You have to look at how is the land made available for acquisition. Land is made available primarily through sales. It may either be an open sale, it may be a private sale, or it may be an auction. But all three mechanisms in which land is made available are driven by landowners. It is landowners who decide which land, what is the size that should be made available for sale. The state is unable to decide for itself that it wants this particular piece of ground, if it is not available in the open market for sale. The second way in which landowners control the structure of land reform is by controlling the price. Landowners decide how much the land ought to be sold for. This is a function of a policy decision made by the ANC government in 1997 in its white paper on land in which it decided that it would follow the willing buyer willing seller. It did so under the influence of the land bank. There is now vast evidence that this was the preference of the land bank but it did so in conflict with the provisions of the constitution that had just been adopted a year earlier, the 1996 constitution, which expressly said that the price for land should not be market related, but should be just and equitable. And the third way in which landowners control the structure of land reform is by controlling what the land is used for. This is why. The University of Stellenbosch published a report three years ago in which they found that all of the land that has been made available for sale to African people through the redistribution program, 99% of that land has been grazing land. Think about this. Of all the land that has been made available for redistribution to black owners, 99% of that has been grazing land. In other words, it has not been high value agricultural productive land. So I come back then to where I started. Why do many have so little and few so much? The answer is complex, but it is reducible probably into three explanations. One, is the stubbornness of history? We are still living with the legacy of colonialism and the stubborn legacy of apartheid. Who has been the structure of land reform in which the policy is heavily weighted in favor of landowners? Three has been the institutionals, institutions rather, that we have created ourselves that have been dysfunctional, that have been corrupt. And now they are breaking apart. If we are to rescue the land reform project from its imminent collapse, we must first rescue our institutions. Thank you.
0: Advocate Tembekan Nogai Tobi. thank you so much for that. Really, 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 really insightful lecture there. Quite a lot to to. Uh, speak on and to ask questions on and I'm opening the lines to you the listeners 086 0 086-000-2032. you can also send us a WhatsApp voice note on zero six one four one zero four one zero seven on the other side of this we take questions and comments. Fifteen minutes to the top of the hour where you're listening to the viewpoint my name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for the honor and the pleasure of your company. Tonight's lecture was brought to you by Advocate Tembe, Tembega Ngoi Tobini, and it was on land restitution. Uh, Tembe, Tembega, perhaps let's start there. Restitution. Why is it important that we speak specifically of land restitution and not interchangeably land restoration? I ask this because it seems that various victories that we've had in our contemporary past uh, in our democratic dispensation around land has been an attempt at restoration. If you think about the 2019 victory that labor tenants had in the constitutional court, um, it, it was fundamentally about restoration and not necessarily restitution, where restitution is about equitable and just compensation, but restoration is about giving ownership to um, and restoring. Uh, not just the ownership thereof, but restoring all that has been lost thereof, the dignity of identity, the dignity of, um, you know, subjugation and and, and bringing that sort of back. Is is that distinction an important one? And why do we have to specifically then speak of restitution and not restoration?
1: Yes, restitution, yes, I mean, that's an important point that you're raising. So restitution is the wider term that incorporates restoration uh, in the form of the physical asset being given back to you or an alternative piece of land being given to you. Uh, But it also incorporates uh, other forms of of recompense, um, which primarily have been cash-based settlements. Um, I mean, one of the reasons your point is an excellent one, is that most of us who argue for uh, more expansive land reform than the ANC has been able to deliver. I usually met with the argument that we have had a success rate, that's what they claim, of more than 90% of land claims. What they mean by that is that they have, in fact, in their books, settled 90% of land claims. But most of those that they have settled have been cash-based settlements, which have meant that um, no land has actually been transferred, but people have been given money. And the amounts were quite small uh, at the beginning. In fact, even now, the amounts are still small. It was the last time I checked an amount of 30,000 rands. Uh, Per family. So, my own view is to speak of restitution and to emphasize restoration in restitution, but not to exclude the possibility of cash based settlements. So, for instance, there were Swana people at some point who once lived in the Sentin area, or at least who once regarded the Sentin area as. They are ancestral land. But it is not practical to ask that they should be returned, but they could potentially receive financial compensation uh-huh. if it is calculated at just an equitable amount. And so that's why one needs to be nimble in relation to what forms of restoration you uh-huh. have, what forms bring back the dignity. Most of the time, those forms are, are not just retaining the land, perhaps even not just money, but there could be other ways of recognizing uh, people's claims to ancestral land.
0: Yeah. Give us a call, 86 0 We're going to go to the lines. Quite a number of calls. So I'm going to ask everybody to be as pithy as possible. We'll start in Matlosana. Percy, you calling from Matlosana. Good evening.
2: Uh, good evening, Oliver, uh, and your guests. Uh, Oliver man, I I want to talk about we are the landowners here in North in JB Max in Makokos We mm. make land in 2018 in December was looted for something like 10,500 hect- acres. As uh, every speak, we've got 720 hectares in the end, but Oliver, uh, we've got challenges here. Because of into, if you check to that land, there is a service there. They say department, uh, government take decision to compulsory us, not consulting with us. As we speak, they appoint, uh, to, what they call this, the uh, government's to represent us. The government appoint the professor. The professor said, you are not the real land owner. You make research, not consulting with us, like we've been verifying like, uh, land owners. And uh, they pay us. For thirty-nine hectares, something like fifty-nine thousand, by this is nineteen fifty-eight. they take decisions for us. We are fighting for almost nine thousand hectares. They don't
0: want to everything. Yeah, uh, Percy, thank you so much for that. Really, really uh, appreciate that you're sharing this uh, that with us. Temenga, in re- in responding to that, perhaps uh, can I add can I add a different texture to uh, an additional texture to that uh, question? You critique the institutionalisation of land reform because it determines which land, because landowners determine which land is available, and for how much, uh, to the exclusion of just and equitability. Uh, and 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 Percy's question seems to speak very specifically to that piece of critique. How how do you un, un, how do you unravel that?
1: yeah i mean this <laughs> no i mean this has been the, the the old problem you know what the hope was you know and i and i accept that the the system has not been working. what the hope was was that you will interpose a government organ between the current owner whose hold over the land is regarded as illegitimate morally, legally, politically, historically. And usually those were white men. Yeah. And the claimant who has an old historical claim. And so the way to avoid that potential combustible climate, you would interpose a state organ, which has been the commission. Yes. Last week, uh, a report appeared in the city press that said that members of the commission in Limpopo were in the pockets of uh, landowners. So even that idea that we, we had that at the beginning of interposing a state organ has ultimately turned out to be disappointing. So it comes back then to how does one, it's still the case that a preferable approach is that you must interpose a state organ, which must then drive the land reform uh, process. But the point is that not this state organ, not these particular individuals, mm. a different form, and, and that's why I ended my lecture by saying, if we are to rescue the, the, the land reform that is in its last knees, we have to rescue the institutions first, rebuild them.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I was going to ask that because when before you got to that, when you critique the institutionalization of land reform. My assumption was that the logical conclusion is that you must deinstitutionalize land reform, and I now understand you to not mean that, but what does the rescue of institutions look like? what's ailing in the institutions is it is is it integrity and honesty or is it the configuration
1: Yes, I think both structurally as well as uh, individually in, in in I quoted the the statements that were made by uh, mr Mlengana, he resigned as the Director General of Land Affairs, I think in 2017, Mlu Mlengana, I think that was his name. He said that he had found it untenable to continue working in the Department of Land Affairs because everyone was in it for themselves and no one was in it for the goals of the Constitution, which was to return land to people who legitimately deserve it. And so there is something there about the people that are in the institutions. But there's also something about the structure as well. The, 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 the structure is too institutionalized and too judicialized. You, you need a more administrative system to handle land reform. You know, uh, many years ago, about five years ago, I was a judge in the land claims court. And I was astonished to, to discover that most people that approached the court were landowners. Wow. But I should not have been surprised because access to court is linked to resources. And the reason they approach the courts, the landowners, is not primarily to claim land, but it is to pursue eviction applications against land occupiers. So I found the scales to be 70% landowner-driven, mainly evictions, and probably less than 10% claimant-driven to try and restore uh, or restitute a land. So yeah. that balance was itself a feature yeah. of, of resources.
0: I'm going to take three calls back-to-back, back, uh, Tembegan, and I'll give you an opportunity after the news, uh, five minutes or so, to respond to them. Uh, I, we are pressed for time, but I don't want to leave it hanging here. I think we need to find a useful cadence and a nice cadence to the end of this conversation that leaves us all hopeful <laughs> for the land reform project. Mike and Newlands, good evening. Yeah.
3: Hi. Good evening, Sougazer. Good evening to the. Advocate. Oliver, I've recorded. The, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I say I've recorded the show. There's so much to take on board here. But um, Oliver, what I wanted to, to just agree with the advocate. The land reclaims, he said, was 94 or 90 percent. Actually, 94 percent of the claims, and only five percent took the cash. Uh, and but he didn't mention the fact that there was a survey done at the same time that indicated only two percent of the people actually wanted land. they actually wanted jobs and the dignity that the jobs gave them. Not, not the land itself. And then I want to just go back to his starting point. I can't argue with his starting point, but I would say we need to bring it forward. I would say the starting point is the ideology that the ANC has introduced into our country since, since the day that Nelson Mandela departed these shores. Because the ANC's idea is to control the land, to control harbors, rail uh, networks, everything, the land bank, everything they want to control. Um, so what that's done. Is that now just that it started to, we were not allowing market forces to take their uh, place as they should in any uh, a modern economy. The government, so now we have a problem, advocate, is that the government now wants to expropriate without compensation. But if they were going to do that, they would need to do it in an honest environment. But I'll just quickly quote uh, Bongi, Bongani Bongo, who is now on, on he took 10 million rands worth of land, he sold it in minutes to our government. And by the way, uh, this gentleman was the Minister of State, Deputy Minister of State Security. He went and sold it on to the government and made himself something like about 36 million. So, my, my,
0: Mike, in a nutshell, are you saying uh, a free market? Uh, the free market will restore justice to land.
3: I, I'm absolutely saying that, and I'm okay. saying that the free market will rectify what. But we have actually passed the point of no return. And I would argue with the, with, with, with the advocate on that case. Germany, after seven years of Second World War, recovered. Japan, eight years. Here we took twenty-eight years, and okay. we're getting absolutely nowhere. We're going to thanks, absolutely thanks
0: be there. Thanks, much. thanks a lot, Mike. Appreciate it. Aisha and Uppington, Good evening.
4: Good evening, uh, Oliver. Advocate Advocate Nuka Toby. I disagree with your starting point. The Koi Koi, uh, yes, there was a genocide committed against our ancestors, but we are still here. Now, this myth is propagated by all of you, white and black settlers alike. because it is. What's fun- the myth, uh, Aisha? The myth is that the Koi and the San are all dead. Because they want to own our territory. Not country, territory.
0: Okay. And what uh, did you, Aisha, yes. did you understand genocide to mean extinct? Yes. Oh, okay.
4: Let, let me finish with him. I just want to say to you, advocate, we're going to meet at the international court so we can solve this. So that you black settlers can go and find your countries that you come from and not try and claim our territory. Thank you.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. KGM in Northwest, good evening. Good evening.
5: uh, (laughs) Good evening to the advocate. Uh, This is an emotive issue, as you would know. Mm. Um, But just to maybe uh, put a bit of meat to what Aisha is saying. Uh, the starting point about this land issue, excluding or outside us as bush people, it, it's just a perpetuation of or a continuation of a bad thing. Advocate Nwai involved and everybody who claims to want to explain this outside us, even your story, even their story, that has been put. Facts are there that we have been so done hard by is an understatement. Now, just as a parting sh- short sure. because you, you, you are on, on time for the news, I, I think the day we can start talking about the land is the day when all this nonsensical, starting with this so-called constitution is, is erased, that all the people are included, particularly as Bushmen, and then we can start talking properly. Right now, it's it's unlawfulness on top of unlawfulness, illegality on top of illegality. What is the advocate saying about us, Bushmen, who are not included in this process? Thank you. Thank you for for taking my call, Kokesu.
0: Thank you so much. A minute after 9 o'clock. Midupi has your news. SAFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Turning conventional wisdom on its head. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. Nine minutes after 9pm, you are listening to The Viewpoint. My name is Oliver Dixon, standing in this evening for Um And I'm in conversation with Advocate Tembega Nungai-Tobi, and we're talking land restitution. We had three calls before we went to the news break, and I'd like to give... Uh, Tembega, the last five minutes, to just sort of wrap up and respond to those questions. I guess in part that SABC2 ad (laughs) answered half of Aisha's question. But uh, Tembega, would you like to respond to some of those, starting with Mike, of course, arguing that uh, free market fundamentalism will deal with land justice? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I I always find this argument interesting because it presupposes that there is no... um, market structure that's operational right now, when the truth is that the ANC policy has been a market-based policy, and the distortions we are living with today are market distortions. What we have right now in South Africa is a product of a market-based system. We have been applying willing seller, willing buyer. We've never applied true state intervention in land. Even the attempts to amend the Expropriation Act have simply not worked. They have not succeeded. Up until now, we have the 1975 Expropriation Act, which expressly says when the state wishes to acquire land or property, it must do so under the assumption that it was buying land in the open market from a willing buyer to a willing seller, transacting in conditions where there is fair competition so so we have the market system it's the market system that has got us where we are and so so the argument is to critique the market system it is not to replace it with an equally imperfect state institution but it is to critique it so that its unacceptable outcomes uh, are not perpetuated into the the future And in many respects, it's probably because big business and landowners have succeeded in creating the myth that somehow the market is not operational in South Africa. When everyone knows that actually that's the dominant force that operates in land reform, and it's in fact the dominant force that operates in the economy as a whole, all of this has its origin in the growth employment and redistribution strategy in gear, huh. which set this country on a market-based growth trajectory and look where that has got us so it, it is a complete distortion of the evidence that uh, somehow the market is outside of the, the policy the market is part of the problem uh, and we've got to be to critique the outcomes that it has led us all of this inequality all of this poverty that we are living with
0: yeah just
1: is in j- fact a product
0: yeah just in in in, yeah. in in just in responding to not a question that mike raised but a comment he made um in in, in critique to uh, state institutionalized land reform uh through expropriation means He argues that a survey revealed that only 2% of dispossessed people wanted the land. The others just wanted jobs. Um, Such surveys are are thrown around quite often, or at least outcomes of such surveys are thrown around quite often as a means often to uh, discourage uh, the necessity of of, uh, wholesale land reform. Do you have a view on that?
1: Yes, I do. I mean, often that is also the the retort that I I hear uh, uh, from landowners and largely sort of market fundamentalists. Uh, They say, "Why, why are you talking about land? Because nobody wants land. Of course, if you asked an unemployed person, would you rather get a piece of land today or would you rather get a job? Or would you rather get 30,000 in your account or would you rather get land? And most people will say, I'd rather get a job. And a lot of others will say, I'd rather get 30,000 rents in, 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 in my pocket today. That's not the same thing as asking them, is land important in your life? And not comparing it with any other um, uh, asset, is land important in your life? The answer to many people, they'll say, yes, of course, land is important in my life. And you also ask yourself the question, and I was in Stellenbosch where I made this argument at Stellenbosch University, I think about three years ago, where a person stands up from the floor and they say that, you know, uh, land is no longer important in the economy. Uh, most of the economy is now driven primarily by tertiary products and services. So I say to him, "Sorry, sir, would you, would you prefer to donate to me your land right now? And you, And the answer always is no, why should I? But I mean, if your argument is that land is not important, then why don't you give it up?
4: (laughs) So this is where,
1: you know, this is where these distortions always happen, is is that someone comes and tells you, as a landless person, they come and tell you that land is not important to you. But they are hoarding, like literally hoarding, uh, uh, Oliver, hoarding hectares of land, Mm. you know so you ask why don't you give it up if it is yeah. not so important to you so so i mean none of this i mean it's all myth upon myth and and, and it's really speaking to the the power of myth making uh, in the hands of the market forces that we are even Today in 2023 in February, I'm debating such a <laughs> yeah. nonsensical. Uh, the power emotion. of myth making. <laughs> <I just laughs> in in 60 so, seconds. So, uh, yeah, by... so there is, but there is an important point around the the story of the the koi koi. Yes. There is a combination of issues that go into this story of the Koko. There is the one, the making of race itself, you know, what the, one of the successes of the apathic government was to create another myth that somehow the people that speak Tosa and the people that s- spoke Afrikaans were different people or the people that spoke Zulu or people that spoke Tswana were different people and they created them as Sort of tribes and created them as different people. Yeah. The most important book on this topic, which I would recommend to your to your listeners, is The Lie of 1652, by Tariq Mellet, who actually shows this construction that took place after 1913, the construction of these new identities, and with this construction of these new identities, it was what he calls to de-Africanize. Uh, so-called colored people, to de-Africanize them, mm. uh, to make them un-African. And yet, if you came to this country 20 years earlier, you would have found those people that spoke Africans identified entirely as African. So often that is part of the problem, and that is why you have these notions uh, that sometimes are very dominant, because again, there is another powerful force that is still driving this notion of festism, you know, that there are people that were, you know, the first nation, and that mm-hmm. first nation is a unique identifiable group that you find in the Western Cape, and everyone else is a settler, you know, that is a deliberate historical distortion with an overt political purpose. So, so progressive voices ought to speak against that, And sometimes you find it, you know, some people are desperate. You know, they say, you know, what is the problem with you, Zulus? What is the problem with you, Kosas? But that constantly takes us back to that idea of the de-Africanization of colored people, when in fact they have the same claim to the sovereignty of this country and to the sovereignty of this territory. And the last point to be made on that issue is that my critique is 1913, because 1913 is tied to the de-Africanization of colored people. And I try to look beyond that and to say what is the most equitable way historically. And we are not trying to resolve a problem of 1652. Yes, I accept that. We're not trying to resolve the problem of what the world was like before Jan van Riepik arrived. We are trying to resolve a world of 2023. Hmm. We're trying to find a way in which we can live harmoniously, in, in ways in which we can live peacefully, ways in which we can live without so much destitution. So we use history, you know, often to inform us, but but we're not trying to create the world that was when Van Riebeek arrived. We accept all of the distortions that have come with the Dutch and the British, but what we're trying to do is to build a different future. So fascism is one of these attempts to then bring us into the universe
0: of Van Riebeek. Thank you so much for this. This has really been incredibly insightful. I've, I got a text here from someone on our WhatsApp line saying, my name is Moji Pilan and I'm listening to your program with Advocate Toby on the land today. Can I access the recording of the show even if I have to buy it? Uh, Moji, you don't have to buy it. It's <laughs> freely available on the SFM website. You can listen to the podcast. But if you do want to buy something, buy one or both of tembeka's books if you were To ask me, I would say start with The Land is Ours. Uh, Reads a lot like a story unless a really, you know, dense conversation on land tracks an important history. But if somebody only had 250 rand to spend, Temeka, which of your two books should they go for first?
1: (laughs) You know, that's like asking which of my two children do I love? But yes, I agree with you. Uh, I agree with you. It should be The Land is Ours. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much. Really appreciate
0: it. That is Advocateman tobi And that brings us to the end of the public lecture. We're back with you with the public lecture on the first Monday of March. Uh, we're going to take a quick break on the other side of this. We speak about pregnancy and depression. Randwater is concerned about
5: the